Turn, if you will, to the book of Hebrews. If you don't have Bible, there are Bible in the back. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, take it. It's yours. It's our gift to you this morning. We are in our second week studying through this wonderful book, Hebrews, titled Jesus is Better. The book will take us through verse by verse, chapter by chapter to Easter. That's how long we'll be in this book looking at it together, 13 wonderful chapters. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 14, but what I'd like to do is just hit the first couple of verses again and just read God's word over God's people, and um, then we will jump into the book. So hear the word of God, the authoritative, inspired word from God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels wings And his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Verse 9. You you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but as you, but you, son, are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Verse 14 to close. And excuse me, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? May God add a blessing to the reading of his magnificent word this morning. Let me bring everybody up to speed. We know the writer, we do not know the author of the book of Hebrews, the human author. It's known as the orphan epistle. I think we could say possibly the Apostle Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, Luke. Some people say Rome of Clement, Clement, uh, Clement of Rome. Um, all familiar New Testament people. Um, but one thing we know for sure, and I mentioned this last week, it's 100% sure we can be confident that God is the divine author. One thing I didn't mention last week, I do want to mention this morning, is that the early church, we know the early church gathered together and assembled the scriptures and put together what we now call 
the canonical books or the, the canon, if you heard that term before. Canon means rule or standard. And when they did so, they had some very good criteria, things like, was the book written by an apostle or an associate? Does the book have apostolic character, like truthfulness and transforming power? Was it a, was it a book that concurred with other agreed-upon scripture? Was it widely accepted? Was it circulated among the churches? Those are some criterias. But ultimately, the church councils did not decide if a book was holy scripture. That was decided when the human author was chosen by God to write it. The holy scriptures, the Bible, did not become the authoritative and inspired word from God because they recognized it as being canonical, authoritative. They recognized it because it was inspired and given to us by God. God's big enough and strong enough and wise enough to write a book. God guided the council through that criteria, and the church only confirmed, that's important, what God has already established. Very important to understand that. So although we don't know it's human author, we know it's divine author, and one of the things we know, it was written to a Jewish people, as the title says, to the letter to the Hebrews. The Jewish congregation had recognized Jesus as their Messiah. They repented of their sins. They believed the gospel. They recognized that he was the promised one. And now you could see that clearly as we see a lot of Old Testament references and scriptures. We'll look at some of that today. But as any other congregation, there were believers, Jewish believers who have trusted in the gospel. And there were some among them that were not genuine Christians. They never really repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly where they were. Some people believe it was around Jerusalem and Palestine, some people say Italy, Asia Minor, Egypt. But one thing we know is that the book was written to a people who were under severe persecution. Probably around Nero, 64 AD, maybe sometime after that, 65, 66, 67 AD. This letter was written and it was for the purpose to encouragement. It was a purpose of encouragement. Chapter 13, verse 22, the letter was written to encourage them. They were, they were, they were, there was this possibility that they were going to fall away from the truth of the gospel. And the writer is saying, listen, I want you to press on to maturity. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel and press on to maturity. And the author does this. We'll see this over and over in the book. The author does this by declaring to them the sufficiency, the supremacy, and the superiority of Christ. He's better than anything. And also warnings, I think there's six of them, five or six of them, warnings not to turn back to the familiar ways, to the familiar rituals, the old ways of thinking. And we have to be mindful of that as well. That Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior than the angels. We'll see that today. Then the law, then the old covenant. The Moses, Abraham, and priest, better sacrifice. He'll bring in, usher in a better kingdom. And all those things may not be something that you are drawn to, but there are a lot of things in our lives that draw us away from the sufficiency and supremacy and superiority of Christ in our life. Good things, family, school, work, jobs. We have to be reminded. And that's what he does. And he, he begins this letter beautifully saying that in the last days, God spoke. God speaks to man. He spoke to the prophets. In these days, now, since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, that's the last days, he is speaking to us through his son, who's the ultimate word, the final word. Jesus is God who put on humanity, and he's the greatest revelation of who God is. Not just his teaching, but his whole person. 
He's not just another prophet. And then if you remember from last week, he gives us seven affirmations about the Son. This, this beautiful revelation of the Son. He gives us seven of them. Let me just run them really quickly. You can pick up the sermons, uh, the CDs or online. Seven affirmations describing the Son who has been given to us. One, he's appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is the inheritor. He, he possesses all that God possesses. Two, look at the text. Chapter 1, verse 1, through him he created the world. It was, Jesus is the, is the agent of creation, including time, space, and energy. Air, he's the creator. Number three, verse three, he's the radiance of the glory of God. He is, as the sun radiates light, Jesus is the reflection, the perfect reflection of God's glory because he is God's glory. The greatest manifestation of God's glory on the earth is Jesus, okay? Number four, he's the exact imprint of his nature. Look at verse three again. Jesus is perfect personal imprint of God. Number five, he upholds the universe. The Son is not only the active agent of creation, he is active, the Son is active in preserving creation. Number six, he makes purifications for sins. That's the work, the priestly work of Jesus, who lived a perfect life and died an atoning death, and his blood now cleanses us from our sins. And lastly, he says, if you look at verse the end of verse three, he sat down at the right hand of majesty. All these things about the Son. He sat down, the work is finished, and now he's sitting down with authority at the right hand of the Father. Now, if you were a Jew, if you were a Jew and you received this letter, and you're a Jewish congregation, you're, you understand the Old Testament, and you read these seven beautiful descriptions of who Christ is, you might say, sounds good. That's a pretty articulate argument, thought-provoking, wonderful things, but on what grounds are you saying that? What grounds do you have to affirm the Son with those kinds of words? That's what verse 14, excuse me, verse 5 through 14 is. The grounds of saying those seven affirmations is the Bible. It's the Bible. It's the word of God in the Old Testament. And now the author is going to say, you know those seven things I said about Jesus? Let me give you seven Old Testament references to prove what I'm saying. So we don't unhinge the Old Testament and it doesn't belong in our Bibles, as someone has once said. Okay? It's very important. That's what, that's what he's saying. There are seven affirmations. Seven is the number of completion. Now there are seven Old Testament scriptures Seven Old Testament passages to substantiate his argument that Jesus, the Son of God, is superior to the angels. Look at verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, he's making a statement. The name we know in verse, in verse 5, the name which is better than angels is the name Son. Okay, we'll see that in verse 5. But before we go there, let's talk a minute about angels, okay? Let me tell you first and foremost, when you die and you leave this earth, you don't become an angel. I, I don't know where that started from. Seems like the past few years, we know someone has passed away, God gained another angel. No. Sorry. 
that's comforting to you. Let me comfort you even better. You remain human, but now you receive a glorified body in the presence of God forever. Now, angels and humans are created beings, created to give God glory. We are created with, with right and wrong, knowing right and wrong, but we don't become angels. We're very distinctively different creatures. Secondly, what you see mostly in TV and in books is not mostly accurate. It depends on what you're watching, but generally speaking, touched by an angel or, you know, the highway to heaven, old show, not accurate. Okay, so we have to really rethink our understanding of angels. I think I mentioned this once before. I grew up in a home that had a Bible. I, I mean, it must have been that big. At least it felt that way for me, and about that thick. And in the back, it had the pictures. And one of them was angels. And there was this angel, right? Big, fat, bloated baby with a harp floating on a cloud. That may be down to hell, I don't know. But that's not the glorious angels we have in Scripture. Scripture has a lot to say about angels. From the cherubim who guard the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, to the angel that Christ sent to reveal truth to the Apostle John in Revelation. There are seraphims in Isaiah 6 who are in God's presence perpetually, perpetually worshiping him. The Bible says there are good angels. The Bible says there are bad angels. There are wicked angels called demons who rebelled. Jude 6, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Just read the Gospels. Jesus will show you. These evil angels are cast out of heaven and now they serve Satan, who was an angel as well. Until the day of the Lord will come and all the evil spirits will be cast into hell. In scripture, many times the angels are invisible, but sometimes they're seen. Second Kings 6, Elijah's servant, scared to death, surrounded by an army. They pray. What does he see? A chariot of fire, the, the mighty angels of God. Sometimes angels take on human appearance. But every time an angel shows up in a human's house or before them, what's the first thing they normally say? Fear not. Because it must have been frightful. Like, don't freak out. I'm not here to wipe you all out. Fear not. During this time of Hebrews, the Jewish people and, and us today, many, many people today, certainly not picking on them, but many of us today, began to enlarge this teaching about angels. They, they believed that the angels were very important to the Old Covenant, and next to God, they were the highest admiri- uh, to, to, they, were, they were the highest kind of, not worship, I don't think it was a worship of angels. I think that they were admiring angels to the point of excess. Many people understood angels to be God's messenger, God's protector, God's army. They were going to come and vindicate the nation. I mean, why not? You see it in scripture, the armies, excuse me, the angels are instruments of God, bringing his word, working things out in the universe. The old covenant we read in Galatians 3 was brought to them by the mediation of angels. They continued to minister, I mean, they were there in creation. They visited Abraham, they rescued Lot, they appeared to Jacob, they carried out death at Passover. This exaltation of angels was in the minds of the people of Israel. So, to them... Angels were enormously lofty and immeasurably important. And the writer of Hebrew, Hebrews finds it necessary to begin with, to start with, persuading them that, that Christ is better than the angels. He is a better mediator. He is superior in nature. He is superior in function. He is superior in honor. He is better. 
much superior. Depending on your translation, the word could be better, could be superior. But Jesus is better. And he uses that term better, superior in Hebrews 13 times. That's why the the sermon series is called Jesus is Better. Now, we know, again, that he inherited the name. There's five things. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first one. Um, But we're going to see five things that Jesus is better, why Jesus is better than angels, okay? So number one, in verse five, his sonship, okay? His sonship, Hebrews 1, 5. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or, again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The writer of Hebrew quotes two Old Testament passages. First, Psalm 2. Second, Second Samuel 7. Both Old Testament passages you will find throughout actually the New Testament. In the book of Acts, the apostles. And, and throughout the Old, New Testament, they've, the writers have taken those psalm, that psalm and that ch- chapter in Second Samuel and used it to point to Jesus, that he is this messianic king. That's, it's a messianic psalm, and Second Samuel is about the messianic kingdom. First, it speaks of David. And then it points to a future king, a a king who will be eternal, a king who will rule the world, and his name is Jesus. Now, sometimes, and some people, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons particularly, but others, often get things messed up when they read these passages, because it sounds like, if if you don't understand what the writer is saying, that Jesus at one point wasn't the Son, didn't exist, and then at some point in time, he was a created being. That's the demonic, evil, wrong interpretation of the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons. If that was true, Jesus is a created being, and he's not God. Okay? He's less than God. But when we look at sonship in the New Testament, or especially in the Old Testament now, because we're going back to Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel, we have to understand about the, what it means to be a son. Not in an American Western view, but in a Middle Eastern ancient book, which that's what it is. Because the sons of God can mean different things. Dr. D.A. Carson, one of the most... Uh, renowned and brilliant New Testament scholar has done a whole study on this. It's wonderful. D.A. Carson, you can look it up. So, sons of God, what does that mean, he's son? If you look in the Bible, actually in the opening of Job, you'll see that the angels are considered sons of God. Israel themselves are considered to be sons of God. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 7, we studied First and Second Samuel recently, especially when it comes to the Davidic king, he's called the son of God. In the New Testament, You read, all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are genuinely his are called children, sons and daughters of God. Of course, the ultimate son, the son, is Jesus. So we could see as we just look through scripture, we'll mention some more, that it's just not bound up ontologically, in other words, by nature. But sonship in the ancient world is a lot more than that. When a son was raised in a home, even if he was adopted, he would normally take on the vocation of his parents. So a baker would become, a, baker, a father was a baker, had a son, he'd become a baker. That's why Jesus is considered what? The son of a carpenter, because his father was a carpenter. In the Bible, you'll read, we read in 2 Samuel, that there are these people called sons of Belial. Belial means worthlessness. And what they mean is not that your father was worthless, but you're acting in such a way that it looks like you came from the family of worthlessness. If you know the, the Beatitudes, speaks of 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay? If you remember, we studied John. Let me just, two more things to you, just to think this through, because it's important. John eight forty four. Jesus talks to the religious leaders, and the religious leaders say, listen, we are children of Abraham. And Jesus says, you are not the son of Abraham. In fact, who are you the son of? You're the son of the devil. Why are you the sons of the devil? Now, ethnically, they were. Ethnicity, I mean, they were offsprings of Abraham. But he said, no, 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 you're not because you're doing what your father does. He's the devil. He's a liar from the beginning. And you're following his footsteps. You're doing what he does. You're not the son of Abraham. You're the son of the enemy, the devil himself. Paul, if you remember, in Galatians, in Romans, says that, he says, who is the sons of Abraham? Who are the sons of Abraham? The answer is those who have the faith of Abraham. So I'm not Jewish per se, but since I belong to the household of God and since I have the faith that Abraham, who believed on Jesus, and now I believe on Jesus, I'm considered the son of Abraham. So you can see what's happening here. One last one I think is so important. John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is such an important chapter. We studied the book of John years, a couple years ago. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. Everyone goes nuts. Jesus says that I have the same right to do what my father does. My father works till this day. I'm working as well. The religious leaders go nuts and say, you are making yourself equal with God. Double blasphemy. You healed on the Sabbath, and now you say you have the same prerogatives and privileges and rights as God himself. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and they said that's blasphemy, and it is, unless you really are God, and he is. Right? Double blasphemy. He's like, no, 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 no. I do everything. I do all that my father does. Who could say that? Jesus claims co-equal prerogatives, rights that God has, behavior, conduct, functionality that God does, I do. So it's not just ontological, it's not just essence and being, which it is, but it's also the the work, the, 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 the position, the acting in such a manner. But look at Jesus. Who can do everything that God does? Who can say everything that God says and not be distinguished from God himself? So it's just ontological. There's an essence in being involved, but there's also this kingly reign and rule that Jesus says, I have the right to do because I do what my father does. I want you to see that. Because in Psalm 2, in 2 Samuel 7, which is quoted here in this passage, it's speaking of the Davidic kingdom. It's speaking of Jesus being the final one to reign and to rule with justice and integrity. It was spoken first of David and then of Solomon as sons of God. But we know that they failed. And that now the son, not a son, but the son must come and inherit an eternal throne, and reign as God reigns, have justice as God has justice, as eternal as God is eternal. You following me? It's very important you follow me, because then when you see, you are my son, today I have begotten you, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, it's not like he became and been created, 
Because the relationship between the Father and the Son is eternal. There was sonship from before time began, John 1. But now, because of Jesus who's come into the world, who's taken on flesh and bones, who has died for our sins, who has risen from the dead, who has ascended to the Father, and now is seated on the right hand, God can say, you have become my son. We have to recognize that this sonship is a description of an eternal relationship. He has always been God. He's always been the son of God. John 1.1. But like any other heir, to a throne. You have to wait till the time has come. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his son. His son has been from eternity past, but now he's been crowned. And now he's been in obedience to the Father, lived the perfect life, died an atoning death, rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, and is seated upon. So something changed. I mentioned this last week. You have to see that in Hebrews, that something wonderfully took place and changed when Jesus, in obedience, left glory and came and died and rose. Now, I, I, I want to hit this one a little bit longer, and then we're going to move on. Turn to Romans 1, if you have a Bible. There's a certain time in which Jesus was exalted, acknowledged, declared, demonstrated to be the eternal Son of God. That's what I'm saying, and Romans 1 tells us that. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised when? Beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament. Concerning his son, who was a descendant from David, according to the flesh, that's fully man. Verse 3, concerning his son, verse 3, yeah, uh, verse 4, and was declared, that word means proven or demonstrated, to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's that sense in which time and space and what Christ has accomplished, that he's been crowned, he's been honored as the eternal son of God. If you know this passage in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself, took on a form of a servant, born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself, you know that verse, to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then what does the scripture say? Therefore, after the work of Christ, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. It's not that he wasn't highly exalted before, but the work of Christ. That's what the son is saying. He's not denying, excuse me, that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's not denying that the Son is eternally the Son. He's stressing that the Son is superior to the angels because he has this unique relationship to the Father through the incarnation, the substitutionary death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement on glory. If you understand that, then you look at Psalm 2, you look at 2 Samuel seven fourteen, and you'll see that Jesus is not only co-equal, co-essence, being with God, but he has now been placed because of what he's done on an eternal throne. He's now the king of kings in space and time. You understand? I I hope you're getting that. I hope you're getting that. He inherits the world. No angel, no angel did God ever say inherit the world. No angel did God say participate in all that I do. 
No angel has God ever said, share in my glory, share in my divinity, only Jesus. And after he made purification for sins, triumph over death, sin, Satan, hell, he's declared the Son of God, the heir of all things, in a new, in a, in, in a new basis and in a new way. Now he reigns as the God-man. So don't let Jehovah Witnesses, we're going to talk a little bit more, say, well, you know, he's begotten. Well, no, he's fulfilling Scripture as the only one who can do what God does. And now he's seated on eternal throne. That's what sonship means. It's more than just, we think, it just come out of someone as a son. No, he's eternal. And now he deserves the title son. And secondly, and we'll move faster, his worship, okay? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Psalm 97 or Deuteronomy 32, both have the same uh, uh, statement in mind. We're not sure, but that's the verse. That's the Old Testament verse. Again, firstborn does not mean he came and was created. They love to do that. Jehovah's Witnesses love to do that. Firstborn means either at his incarnation or his second coming. In a Jewish family, the firstborn was the one held in the place of highest honor and responsibility. But not every time the firstborn child, in a sense of, of progeny or, or offspring, would receive that. We know that according to Scripture. Turn with me to Colossians 1.15. I use this verse, um, not to beat up on the Jehovah's Witnesses, but their doctrine is evil, so why not? Colossians 1.15. I turn this verse all the time with them. My job is to, 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 to reveal the truth to you. Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Ah, see, we got you, Pastor. He's the firstborn. So he wasn't born. At one point, he was born. I said, really? So Jesus created being, yes. I said, okay, can you read the next verse? Okay. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones of dominion, rules, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things, not some things, not everything but him, all things were created by him. So he couldn't have been a created being. Well, that's not what all means. I'm like, okay, you go figure out what all means. I'm taking all from all, that's all more means. You know what I mean? All things. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that, listen, that in everything he might be preeminent. There's the, there's the key. The firstborn of a creation means that Jesus surpasses all created things. They would have understood that in that day. The point is that Jesus' special status as son is over all creative realms. It doesn't mean he was created. It means that he is first and exalted above all creatures. Christ is preeminent over all creation. And therefore, because of that, he is worthy of worship. He is scribing worship. Let all God's angels worship him. They began worshiping Jesus when he came, right? I mean, uh, we see that in the incarnation. Suddenly a great cloud, a host appeared. The angels praising God. Glory to God in the highest. In the New Testament, when, a, when an angel shows up and man tries to worship angels, what happens? John says, don't do that. Get up. <laughs> Get up. Don't worship me. Worship God. Don't worship me. Worship God. God alone receives worship. Anything outside of that is called idolatry. 
Jesus worshipped by angels in eternity past, angels during his ministry, and eternity present. Revelation 5, we just sang about this. I looked and heard a voice of many angels, thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands, Revelation 5. They encircled the throne and the living creature and the elders in a loud voice says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and, and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, that's Jesus, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Unless you're a fallen angel and you're worshiping Satan, angels can only worship God. It was the command of God. It is their joy to worship their God. Jesus is the one who is worshiped. What's really cool about this text is, whether it's Deuteronomy 32 or Psalm 97, we're not sure, but if you read the Old Testament text in its context, the word him clearly refers to Yahweh. God of the Old Testament is the only one to be worshipped. And here the word him refers in its context to the Son. Whom God's angels are to worship. Demonstrating again, once again, the fullness of deity inherited in the Son with the clear assigning to him to what the Old Testament assigns to Yahweh, Jehovah. Let all God's angels worship him. Look at his rulership, verse 7. And the angels, he says, and of the angels, God says, he makes his angels wings, his ministers a flame of fire, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Here the writer demonstrates the superiority and supremacy of Christ. The son to angels by saying the angels are servants, but the son is sovereign, eternal, who rules the kingdom. Again, a reference to the promise of the Davidic kingdom, 2 Samuel 7. So now, just so you know, verse 7 is a quote from Psalm 104. And verse 8 is a quote from Psalm 45. Notice in your Bibles. Verse 8. But of the Son, he says, that's God, going back to verse 5. But of the Son, God says, your throne, O God. God is calling his Son, God. His throne, his scepter, his anointing gives us this dimension of this brilliant sovereignty. His throne, his rule, his reign will never end. His scepter, his authority will be executed in righteousness. And the reason the angels bow down and worship him is because he's the eternal king who has supreme authority and rule over all the earth. Angels in scripture are great and mighty and to some degree glorious, but they are ministers of the throne of God. Christ sits enthroned. They exercise their servanthood. Jesus exercises his rule and sovereignty. Verse 9 again, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. It is the, it is the eternal quality of the Son. Before he came during his ministry and afterwards, he is perfect, who lived a perfect life. And he is worthy to be worshipped and to save sinners. 
He loved righteousness. He hated wickedness. It is this perfection, this obedience of Christ, which culminated in the suffering on the cross, where the measure of God's love is seen and, and, and God's hatred of wickedness is seen. Do you understand that? The gospel is that Jesus Christ went to the cross because our sin is so wicked and so bad. Yet he loves us and he loves you that he willingly went as the only means of our salvation. 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's him. For the unrighteous, that's us. That he, God, the Lord Jesus, might bring us to God. Where could we run? Where could we go to receive the righteousness that we so desperately need but lack? It's found in the righteousness of Christ. Perfectly hated wickedness and perfectly loved righteousness. When we were studying the kingdom, when we, excuse me, 2 Samuel, well, first and 2 Samuel, David had this moment in his kingdom where everything was going really well. I don't know if you remember that. And the kingdom was spoken about, the kingdom on earth was spoken about in 2 Samuel 8, 18, that it was ruled by justice and righteousness. But we know, because we finished the rest of the book, how David turned out. It didn't all go very well for him in the end. Why? Because there is no one perfect like Jesus. He is a prefigure. David is the prefigure of a king who will come, who will reign and rule in absolute justice, in absolute righteousness. And praise God, because every ruler, every ruler has some injustice, some discrimination. There is no one perfect but the Son who humbled himself, took on flesh, went to the cross, died, buried, rose again, and now fulfills all the messianic hope of Second Sam, uh, excuse me, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel. And therefore, look what it says. God, your God, has anointed him with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Companion could even mean other men, since Jesus is the prophet, the king, and the priest, or angels. It depends on the context. Um, I think it could be both. Originally, in Psalm 94, that's the quote. He's speaking of men here. He's talking about angels. The point is, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Anointed One, the Christ, the Messiah. No angel could say that. He alone has been set aside, consecrated by His perfect life. Jesus is the true and better and final prophet. He's the true and better final priest. He's the true and better final king. And God here is expressing joy. I love that. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy, the oil of gladness beyond your companions uh, his sonship worship rulership look at his preeminence the fourth proof psalm 102 hebrew quotes psalm 102 verse 25 and you lord jesus son laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you remain they will all wear out like a garment like a robe you will roll them up like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. And your ears will have no end. Again, look at the original context. The context in Psalm 102 is talking about God, Yahweh, the Father, the Creator. And now he's drawing out that Jesus, not only is the Creator of the universe, but 
the God who creates is the same as the Son who creates. That's the difference between this verse and verse 2. Jesus is the eternal God, creator, and sovereign one and only one who is to be worshipped. And what's interesting about these verses, I'll teach you a little something this morning. If maybe you heard this before. You probably have some of you. There are, there are God's attributes, okay? When we talk about God's attributes, we talk about his character and the things of who he is. There are attributes, okay? There are attributes called the communicable attributes, the ones that God shares with us, like... Um, Let's see, love, truth, um, I have a couple of things written down here. Love, truth, uh, kindness, all these things that God is, he, he, he shares with us. Goodness and justice and truth. But there are things that God doesn't share with his creatures. They're called the incommunicable attributes. Things like eternity, no beginning, no end. Omnipotence, all-powerful, all-knowing. Immutability, in other words, God doesn't change. Okay, we change. God doesn't change. These are the attributes that have been given to God alone. And here in this text, it says that Jesus has those incommunicable attributes, the things that God shares with no one. I want you to see the beauty of Christ. I want to make much of Christ this morning to you because that's what the writer is doing. And he's saying, look, he has these attributes that only divinity has. And listen, creation is going to be done with. It's going to roll up. It's going to end. But the sun never ends. He never changes. And you see this contrast that the oceans and the, and the mountains and the valleys will perish like old clothes. But, and that's not a political statement, but Jesus doesn't change. He will never end. Romans 8 says that creation was subjected to futility. Peter tells that the day of the Lord will come and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works and everything in it will be exposed. There's going to be this radical renovation, this renewal of the earth. It's going to be wrapped up. It's not going to be annihilated, but it's going to be changed as God redeems all man, all heaven, all earth with a new heavens and a new earth. Reverses the curse, makes all things new, but Jesus doesn't change that's the point they perish you remain you're the same your years do not change do you see that angels were created they changed jesus not created eternally god cannot change and he's celebrating this permanency of the eternality of christ the son of god we have to move on let's go to the last one preeminence verse 13 and 14 and to which of the angels has, has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The seventh Old Testament quote comes from Psalm 110. You, if you're tracking with me, it's Psalms, 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 Psalms. It makes you want to look at Psalms a little bit differently because they're all pointing to Jesus here. Right? The letter begins with the supremacy, sits out in the right hand of God, and now here it, in, here it is again as he closes this exposition that Christ is superior over the angels. No angel was ever invited, was able to come and sit at the right hand of the Father. No angel was invited there. 
They were, they were standing in the presence of God. We see that in Job and in Gabriel. But no one has been invited to the place of this unique honor. Yes, they, they, they ministered. Yes, they joyfully follow the commands of God. Yes, they care for and minister to those who will inherit salvation. But Jesus atoned, died for our salvation. God promised to make Jesus' enemies, not the angels, Jesus, a footstool under his feet. This is a picture of a complete authoritative dominion over the world. Now, Hebrews, we'll see it next week, chapter 2, verse 8 says, we don't see it from our perspective right now, but it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. God knows the beginning, the middle, and the end. And there's going to come a day when Jesus will reign and rule and everything will be subjected to him. In ancient days, the, the armies would fight and the general would place his foot under the throat of a defeated foe. We see that in uh, Joshua 10. And he's saying, you know what? Everything's underfoot. Listen, someday in the future, it's absolutely going to happen where everything will be given over to the sun. All the enemies we put away. Paul writes this. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, after destroying every authority, after destroying every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Everything opposed to God will be destroyed. Sin, Satan, worldly powers, the death, the grave will be destroyed and Jesus will reign. Will reign. And that's what happens. And we, we read that in Revelations. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. He will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away, and the voices proclaim the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord in Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. No angel gets to sit in authority, but Jesus does. But Jesus does. Now, I recognize as we close, I recognize that there's not a whole lot of personal application here. I want to make much of Christ. But let, give me two more minutes, and I, I, want to, I want to bring this home, okay, before we go and, and continue to worship in song. Let me ask you this question. What do you, you don't have to answer this out loud, just think about it. What do you get excited about? What impresses you? What, what is that foundational thing that brings you satisfaction and joy? What is that rock bottom person, thing, relationship? Listen to C.S. Lewis, Weight of Glory. He says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Hebrews, we're only in chapter 1. Hebrews 1, this text is making much of Jesus because we are too far easily pleased. 
This text is making much of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, because we are too easily pleased. What are our options? I can either align myself, resign myself with the truth, and repent and realize that Jesus alone is enough. Jesus alone is enough, or or keep my delusional self and worship me, worship things that don't matter, that never truly satisfy, are never going to eternally be enough. My hope this morning as a church, my hope this morning is that we worship Jesus for all that he has done and all of who he is. I want him to be enough. I want him and him alone to be enough, to engage our hearts, to engage our soul, to impress us. So that when we read this glorious passage of Scripture, we fall down and worship Him and praise Him for who we are. And all the things of this earth, all the issues we face, all the problems we face will will seem small in comparison to the supremacy of Christ. That's what this is all about. It's about Him, not about us. And so that's our prayer. As we worship Him, let us as a church respond because He has the greatest name. He deserves to be worshipped. He is all authority and rule belongs to Him. He is permanent and He has preeminency over all the earth. Worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, as we now respond to Your Word, as we now see the beauty and incalculable worth of Christ, Father, it is our prayer that for those who don't know Him will see Him for the first time as Savior from their sins and Lord over the universe. Turn from their sins and trust in Him alone today. And Father, may we also as a congregation, when things get in our way, when we seem to be drawn away for things that will never truly satisfy, may we be reminded that Your grace is enough, that Christ is enough, the Savior, the Lord, the reigning ruler of the universe has died for our sins, has rose from the dead, has ascended to the Father, he is seated in authority, and he calls everyone to come, trust and believe upon him, and become children of the living God. Let us pray as we sing together.